Even though we are always in the process of creating history, we tend not to pay attention to history so that history is doomed to repeat itself. Dan Hampton, the director of Growth Ministries at Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Colorado Springs, joins me on this episode 54 of the Praying with the Eyes podcast as we discuss the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. We dive into the events that surround the Reformation as well as its implications for us today. Welcome to the Praying with the Eyes podcast. Your host is Doug Bronner, senior pastor at Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado. As an avid photographer, Doug combines the beauty of God's creation with the beauty of His Word in a Praying with the Eyes devotional blog. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. This day by our director of growth ministries at Holy Cross, Dan Hampton. I do. And Dan is uh, teaching a class right now on Reformation history. We're at the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and so that's what the the topic that we're going to deal with today. We're going to talk about the 500th anniversary, but also try to bring in some implications for it today. Uh, we do, you know, it, it's going to be a lot of facts about the past, and we want to inform people about right. what what it's about. But history can be fun. It is fun, especially with you and me talking yes, about it. <laughs> I guess we should have brought Jeffrey in just for the comic relief that it would have brought. That's to. true. But we would have had to really rein him in, so not getting too too uh, sidetracked. Uh, the Praying with the Eyes podcast is a ministry of Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And uh, uh, again, Dan and I both are privileged to serve there. As I mentioned, he is the director of Growth Ministries, which means that he he handles all the what would commonly be known as education ministries. Mm-hmm. I kind of like to stay away from that word because I think it has a classroom mentality to it. Uh, but from cradle to grave, right, uh, um, covers that. So he's got a huge responsibility, uh, and uh, uh, and he does he's doing a great job. Well, thank you. And uh, and so anyway, uh, if you want to find out more about what's happening at Holy Cross, you go to our website at holycrosscs.org, holycrosscs.org. And if you'd like to subscribe to the Praying with the Eyes daily devotional blogs, we'd love for you to go to our website there at prayingwiththeeyes.com. We publish a daily devotional blog. There's six of us writing those blogs right now. And uh, a short inspiration for your day to get you going and you can subscribe by right-hand corner. You can click on the subscribe button there and give us your email, and and uh, then you'll get those uh, daily devotional blogs plus reminders of the podcast whenever the podcast comes up. We're doing things a little differently today, and Dan is really a, 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 the guinea pig uh, with us. We are actually videoing it. Hi, Hello. everybody. If you're uh, watching this on... I'm hoping on YouTube to put it up on our YouTube channel, and uh, hopefully that will work. But there's no guarantees as of this recording. Okay, so if we if you don't see anything come up, it's because some technical difficulty on my part, which I'm prone to do. <laughs> so anyway, and you might see a dog walking through around over there. Ginger's enjoying being up here with us, and. Uh, uh, she wants to be where the men are. She likes being around men. So anyway, um, when we think about the Reformation, what we call the Reformation, really the uh, the Reformation 
doesn't just start in 1517. We 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 talk about the 500th anniversary of the Reformation because that's when Luther posted the 95 Theses on the castle church door, the Schlosskirche in Wittenberg, Germany, or some say he didn't. Yeah, history, historians can debate that, but regardless. We know the 95 Theses well, yeah. are real. That part we know we is know. real. How they got published, we're, there's debate about that. So I still like the tradition of him posting them on the door. Oh, I do too. I think it makes sense. It does. It, it fits with his character. And, and it's, a, and it's it is, the castle church was a university. Yes. And so writing them in Latin and putting them on that door would make sense mm-hmm. because everybody that's going to university knew Latin would be able to read. And plus that was the debate language of debate. Right. Not the vernacular German. You wouldn't do that. Right, exactly. You would be, you'd be wanting to engage the academics of the time, which is what Luther was trying to do with his 95 Theses. He wasn't trying to revolt against the church. He was asking questions. I like to think of the 95 Theses as 95 questions for or against the practices of the sale of indulgences. Which we'll get to in, in hopefully in a short period of time, but we have to set, I think, a little bit of the stage for Luther because Luther is not the first of Reformers. Um, there were others that came along too, but one of the more popular ones uh, was John Huss. John Huss, who lived about 100 years before Luther. In fact, uh, he died in 1415, being burned at the stake. How old? I don't want to know how old he was. I don't know that one either. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but a very unfortunate way to die. Well, it, and and he spoke out for many against many of the same things Luther did. Right, he did exactly. He he argued against the sale of indulgences. He argued against the authority of the church. Uh, he also argued that the church should not take up a literal sword uh, and fight and lead crusades, which uh, also were happening along the same time. The crusades were still. Happening. The big one really occurred in the, in the 11th century, but there were still were smaller crusades happening during this time. And because of those arguments, and there were more, but those are the big ones, uh, he was brought before council in Constance and was burned at the stake. And you're, and, and it, he was, he didn't have the protection, right? That's what you were saying. Right. Luther had protection. We'll get to that in a moment, but I think this is we're talking about Huss now. One of the issues was he did not have the protection of anyone. Right, he he didn't have a uh, a ruler or a nobleman or an other authority that was able to keep him safe. He was, however, granted safe passage to the the church council that burned him at the stake. But oh well, that didn't really work very well for him. <laughs> Sounds to me like there was an idea that uh, that he was going to be burned before he got there. Yeah, I mean, he John Huss actually we have records of he wrote his will and testament before he left to go to that trip. He he knew what was going to happen to him most likely, even though he was granted safe passage. Okay, so then we move forward 100 years or so uh, to Luther and the time around Luther. Uh, Let's let's talk about the Roman Catholic Church at this time, uh, because it's not just a church. Right, you got to really understand the Roman Catholic Church is just as much of a a state authority or, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It just blanked on me civil authority as much as it is a spiritual one. Uh, the papacy at this time in the Catholic church owned 50% of the land in Europe. I mean, the 50% of all the land that was the churches, uh, it was the largest organization in all of Europe and had, and therefore also had the most power. I mean, the Pope's authority was over that at this time of even a King uh, to be crowned a King or an emperor. You had to have the church's blessing and approval of it. 
Uh, otherwise, it wasn't legitimate until the Pope gave his blessing. So that's that's a lot of power that an organization can have. So because of that, the, the Popes themselves were less spiritual and were much more of a CEO kind of form, as we might think today. They, they were businessmen. Uh, Leo X, who's, of course, the, the Pope during Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses, uh, was from the Medici fam- family in Florence, and they were businessmen. They were powerful businessmen. So this is, let's go on with the secular aspect of it then. You got this thing called the Holy Roman Empire, and I don't think people understand that what the Holy Roman Empire was, because it, it wasn't just Germany. It's uh, Spain, um, mm-hmm. France. It's parts of France. Parts of France, uh, yeah. Depending on what year you're looking at. At this time, uh, a little bit of France, a little bit of Spain, uh current day Poland, Italy, uh, a lot of those other smaller countries, we're all part of the Holy Roman Empire. And the Holy Roman Empire has its roots back with an, a guy named Charlemagne who really brought this, this this collection of tribes together. And even that carried forward to Luther's time where the Holy Roman Empire isn't like an empire we might think of where Rome. Rome was an empire that had absolute authority. Caesar had complete authority over all Romans. The Holy Roman Empire was controlled by the emperor, but he had a very loose control over all these different principalities or states as we might refer to them. They each had their own individual ruler. So in our instance, Luther lived in an area called Saxony, and the ruler of that area was Prince Frederick the Wise. And so Luther's direct, um, not supervisor, but authority was Frederick the Wise. Now whenever armies attacked or whenever there needed to be cohesion amongst uh, the, the place, that's where the emperor fell in. Emperor was the one who led the troops, who brought uh, both the ch- re- helped run the church and bring bring it all together, so that the Holy Roman Empire remained one united. And I'm assuming area. then that it was expected of the electors in Germany that they would provide the troops yes. without question. Yes. Okay. Yep. So, like, whenever they go to fight the Muslims or we might call Turks, they, that's right. Okay. So forward. Uh, at this time, uh, as Luther's getting older. Uh, there's turmoil also in the Holy Roman Empire. Who's going to lead? Right. Well, so date-wise, so 1517 occurs. Luther, 95 Theses, on the church door. Bam. That starts a a domino effect that the church doesn't like. But then in 1519, the emperor, Maximilian, dies. And so what that allowed for Luther was the ability to have kind of of a safety. Because now the papacy is taking attention away from this little German monk and focusing on, hey, we want to get the right guy elected as Holy Roman Empire. So it gave Luther a little bit of breathing room for a year and a half uh, to write some more awesome works uh, that we now have today, like The Bondage of the Will and uh, Freedom of a Christian. But it also gave him some more opportunity to gain more support amongst the people. These and were, also the the elector of Saxony himself. Yeah, Prince Frederick became a Lutheran during this time, which allowed for Luther to have the protection that he needed, uh, which will be very important when it comes to 1521, when now the Pope and Charles, who's elected Holy Roman Empire, Charles V, call Luther to an imperial diet in the city of Worms. And this imperial diet was did twofold purposes. One, it really wasn't supposed to be just about Luther. There's a lot of of secular and important businesses that the Holy Roman Empire need to take over. So it wasn't just all about Luther's um, break with the church and what he was arguing against. 
or I would I would advocate the church's break from Luther because <laughs> they're the one who excommunicate him. Yes, they do excommunicate, and they excommunicate him before that that diet takes place. So actually, when when Luther um, or when Charles V calls this diet together to have this conversation, he's just going to say, "Okay, princes, deliver Luther up to Rome." He's been excommunicated, so he's got to get you know sent down for the Inquisition. And Prince Frederick and others are like, whoa, hold on a second. He needs to be tried in Germany. If he gets sent to Rome, we know what's going to happen to him. He's going to be burned at the stake, and you will never hear another word from him. So you, he's a German citizen, therefore he needs to be tried on German, German soil. And after some counsel, Frederick is told... If you don't agree to this, you might have a revolt on your hands because Luther, by this point in time, from 1517 to 1521, has gained so much popularity, you might consider him one of the very first true celebrities of the modern world, where the people of Germany loved Luther. And, and still do. And still- <laughs> um, I, 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 because we were amazed when we were in Germany in, in, in uh, 2014. I think it was 14, around then anyway, the summer, and we were spent a few days in Wittenberg, that even though they don't they don't honor him so much for his theology, they honor him really, I think you're right on target when you say as a celebrity. They yeah. still, his celebrity status, in fact, during World War II, Wittenberg was off limits by both the Allies both and sides. the Germans yeah. to for any kind of bombing uh, because of, uh, of that history. Mm-hmm. That's a part of it. So fascinating. Part of it. Let's 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 go on with it. Since we're there at the Diet of Worms, we're going to go back in in, in times uh, and get to how we got to that point. Uh, but we're kind of giving this overview at this this point for just a second. So he's called to the Diet of Worms, um, and and you're saying first of all, what is a diet? Well, it's kind of like a council, like we might think of as a would be the way I would describe it, uh, or a, a gathering of all the all the leaders uh, or a summit. As we might say today, you have to, you know, all the world leaders are getting together for the environmental protection. So would that have been within the Holy Roman Empire, the the entirety of the Holy Roman Empire, uh-huh. or just within the German states? No, all the Holy Roman Empire, all of their uh, princes, all of their rulers, all of their handlers and, and officials, and all of the church officials, all the cardinals, all the bishops, all the archbishops, uh, the other represent, representatives of the Pope himself. So... Uh, in the words of uh, Dr. Meyer, who's a, uh, a speaker and, and was a teacher at the University of Michigan, he called this is the one of the most important gatherings in modern history, where you have this scene set where you have the secular world and the and the the Christian world all together in this one place, all the important leaders, and here comes this little monk on the scene to make to But make there was history. a little, there was also a little bit of an entourage with him. He wasn't the he, only He wasn't one alone. That, yeah, he yeah. had Melanchthon and a few others with him. Yeah. So he's boldly goes there and this is where he made his famous statement, right? This is where he, you know, he's asked, he's brought up and here's a funny thing I, I learned recently how this small matter of Luther was actually pushed off to the end of the day till like four o'clock, last thing on the agenda. You know, people are tired and they're like, all right, here comes Luther. And when he comes forward, they lay out before him, here's all the works that you have written so far. Do you recant these? And Luther says, he suddenly, it's almost as if he suddenly feels the weight of what's happening. And he says, may I have a day to consider? Which is granted to him. He comes back the next day, again, about four o'clock in the afternoon, after all the rest of the important business of the Holy Roman Empire. And they once again say, will you recant? Luther's response, 
He says, well, I can't recant all of my work because they're not all the same. Some are basic works of theology that even his opponents believe are correct. Uh, and to go against them would be to go against scripture. Others of them are works against certain individuals. And then Luther admits that I may have gone too far. But this isn't a good enough answer. Uh, the Inqu Inquisitor questions him again. Says, do you recant all these? And Luther realizes that they want a simple answer, a yes or a no. And so that's when, yes, he, he utters the famous that unless he is proven by scripture, then he cannot or will not recant anything. Here I stand. I can do no other. Yeah, God and, help me. Yeah, yeah, God help me. Uh, which is important. So we set kind of a historical framework. We're going to take a break for a second. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what was going on specifically around the time of 1517, October 31st, uh, 1517. 17. Back in a moment. Going deeper, you're listening to the Praying with the Eyes podcast. We kind of gave you a, a, a view of the big picture up until the Diet of Worms and what was going on, not just in Luther, but uh, in, in the world, in the church at that time. We're going to be a little bit more specific now and talk about that time period around uh, the posting of the 95 theses and, and what they were about, what they were dealing with, and, and before we move on. And then we're, we're finding as we, as we go about this that it's, it's going to be easier for us to kind of talk about the implications for all this a little bit later on. We may get to some of that, but it's it's kind of needed to get set the framework and, and mm -hmm. what really was happening during the time. So if you have any questions or thoughts, you're free to email me at questions at prayingwiththeeyes.com. It's questions at prayingwiththeeyes.com. Would love to hear from you. So let's talk about this thing called indulgences. Is that where I eat too much cake? <laughs> I indulge? <laughs> No, uh, you don't have that problem. The guy sitting across <laughs> from you has more of that problem. Oh, I got a sweet tooth, man. I got a sweet tooth. <laughs> See, you, you put chips and chips and salsa, or maybe some queso in front of me. Uh, Game over. Also, you would have liked the salsa I just made. I made a salsa Ooh. out of my tomatoes I grew, uh -huh. and uh, and then I had uh, Anaheim chilies, and I can't remember the name of the other chili. It's a real popular chili, but it's a mild chili, and then uh, jalapeno. Yeah, and and then I was supposed to add green, uh, uh, green pepper, oh, green, green peppers to it, and I didn't. I actually just forgot that. I'm kind of glad I didn't. And then I roasted them over a barbecue, Ooh. and I used charcoal, so it was good. and with with some extra wood thrown in there. Mm -hmm. Oh, did it have? It was a wonderful smoky. Uh, You're salsa. making me really hungry right now. Oh, ah, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the indulgences. What what were they? An indulgence is simply put were a, a a way in which a sinner could become right with God by paying a price. So you would, at various times throughout the, throughout the church history, the Pope would issue a indulgence that would forgive a sin or allow years off of purgatory uh, for a set amount of money. Now, what Luther is really going against uh, when he nails those 95 theses is he's going against a plenary indulgence. And the difference is a plenary indulgence is one that grants complete amnesty or complete forgiveness of all of your sins and frees you from purgatory or anyone else you bought it for, and you get to go right to heaven. So as John Tetzel, who, of course, is the guy who is you know, selling these indulgences in right across the river from Wittenberg, 
Uh, he says he's, he's known to be saying things like a coin in a coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Well, and I love um, his whole approach. So he had his, his first uh, advance group would go into the city and prepare the city for his arrival. Right. And then he would almost come in like a, a royalty. Oh, yes. In, into to the city. And everybody's expecting uh, he's a great orator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and it was a show. It was yeah. It, it, it was, was, a, it was paid, a total... people were paying for a show that they thought that they would get them out of purgatory. So we need to spend a couple of seconds talking about purgatory and what at this time was understood about purgatory. So at this time, and um, as far as my reading goes, it still is is kind of similar today. Uh, purgatory is a place uh, within the Catholic Church at the time where one would finally purge the rest of their sins. Uh, it was a set amount of time based on their their sins that were not atoned for in their lifetime. Uh, so, in essence, when you died, you went to this in-between place where you lived out the rest of your sentence of purgatory. And once you had been fully cleansed of all of your sins, you would then enter into heaven. And so, we're talking here about venial sins because there are mortal sins that, there you, are. Yeah, that you bypass purgatory to hell. Right, exactly. If you're guilty of those mortal sins, game over. So the venial weakness, sense of weaknesses, and so forth, that you couldn't do enough this side of eternity to, to, exactly. to purge, which is kind of an interesting concept, which really does say, I can't do enough here to counter mm-hmm. my sin. Right. Right. And so and within this place, it was really viewed as the final process of being made right with God. So Christ's death and resurrection got you forgiveness from your original sin, uh, but you still had to atone for through penance or, or through purgatory those sins you committed throughout your day, throughout your week. Okay, so these indulgences were sold, but there's a there's a substory to why the indulgences are being sold. They're funding something very important in Rome. They are. Uh, this this indulgence is specifically going to build St. Peter's Basilica. Now today, it's one of the great sites you can visit in Rome, uh, but as you thing to remember is this building uh, or at least the 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 church building itself now not the piazza that is out in front of it uh, but the building itself was constructed through the sale of indulgences and that's how they got money to to buy it well so in one sense uh uh tetzel who's this this amazing order and and bringing in big bucks he is for, bringing in big bucks for building the the St. Peter's Basilica. And it should be noted, too, that this building is not a new thing. Like, there's been a basilica there on the site, but it's it's kind of gotten a little old, a little run down. And the several popes before Leo X were trying to rebuild it. Julian II was also trying to rebuild it, and the popes before him were trying to rebuild it. Um, it had several different architects. At this time, we have this guy named Michelangelo. Ever heard of him? Never heard of him. Never heard of him. Yeah. He's the one who has designed it, and that, <laughs> he's kind of credited with having the final final design process of, of the basilica itself. So back to, to Wittenberg, um, Luther uh, is in uh, Wittenberg. He's now a professor yes. at, at the University of Wittenberg. And here's about Tetzel selling indulgences. At the same time, he's lecturing at the, he was a, 
he was an exegete. He he was he was a professor of the of the scriptures and and a lot of the Old Testament. And he's lecturing on Psalms during this time period. And he's being influenced uh, by the scriptures now. And he begins to have a problem with indulgences and with Tetzel himself. Right. Because you, you have these, this idea, and he's also, remember, he's not just a university professor. He's also the priest. He's also the one that is in charge of, the, of his parishioners there in Wittenberg. Yeah, you and I were talking about the fact he preached 170 sermons in one year. Yeah. yeah that's amazing. Plus all of his, his, his teaching responsibilities. Of course, he's not married at this time. Right. But, you know, at this time, he has people coming across the river. Hey, look, Luther, I bought this indulgence. And he's like, what? Well, what is this? And he he reads them and he just gets mad. <laughs> because I'm, I'm trying to remember why Tetzel was not able to enter the city. Oh, Frederick wouldn't let him. Okay. Frederick would not let him come into his territory because Prince Frederick owned a huge collection of relics. And we'll get to that in a moment. We, we will. So to have a plenary indulgence would grant someone free of purgatory would have been detrimental to Frederick's relic collection, which people had to pay to view. We got to understand history like it is today. We like to make things really simple, but it's not simple. No. Frederick, who protects Luther, also was still in the business of indulgences. Yes, he was. He 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 kind of towed that line and kind of you know liked what Luther was saying, but at the same point, he wasn't rocking the boat. He he was very wise. Hence the. <laughs> and I don't remember if you shared it with the time you and I talked. Frederick the Wise was actually uh, the Pope's choice for being the Emperor Sac- uh, uh, the, uh, the Holy, Holy Roman Emperor. Yes, he was instead of Charles V. Yep. And it's kind of what what it turned in history had that actually happened. You it, know, it would be interesting what would have happened instead. Don't know. He may not have had his protection. He may. Not. As you mentioned, uh, he was a, a great politician. Mm-hmm. So, so the indulgence being sold, Luther's upset about these pieces of paper that people are coming to him. Because the other thing people don't understand about Luther is that he's an amazing pastor. He is. He cares. He truly cares about his his people uh, more than I would say even some pastors at this time. Uh, I think a lot more because his concern in writing the two catechisms, especially the large catechism, was that pastors weren't being pastors. Right, right. They were usually pastors were pastors because they paid someone for the position. Because uh, you got to remember, a part of the whole system at this time was by being a monk or being a priest or part of the clergy, uh, you were more holy than the average person. Yeah, and just so that people understand too, you didn't to be a monk did not mean you had to be a priest. Uh, now right. Luther happened to be both, uh, to, to become, become a monk and and also a priest. But there were a number of, of brothers mm-hmm. who re- just remained monks. They never became priests. Just I think there's I, I'm, I think there's kind of this idea. Oh, if you're a monk, you were a priest. No, no, no. Right, right. You had to be ordained, and not all monks were were ordained. Right, and Luther was. So let's let's shift then. We got the outside the city. We have Tetzel selling his indulgences and doing a, a great job of of taking away money. But this is also hurting Frederick, mm-hmm. who on All Saints Day, and probably up before that, I'm not sure how, when the, well, when he opened the doors for the, the, the relics. Right. But definitely on All Saints Day, he was going to have a huge, that, that day, so November 1st, 1517, which is All Saints Day, he was going to have a huge celebration to celebrate 
these 17,000 plus relics that he housed in his collection in Wittenberg. And did I hope everybody heard that 17,000. You got to talk about some of these. And you mentioned them before <laughs> what these relics were. They're, this is amazing. Oh, oh, like the thumb of St. Anne. And if you're like, well, who is St. Anne? Well, St. Anne is the mother of Mary. Uh, as well as a thorn or a part of the bush from Moses's burning bush. Oh, and my personal favorite, you know, milk from the virgin's breast. <laughs> what? How? What? Yeah, oh. yeah. She stored it away because she knew that it would need yeah, to be. Yeah, someday that'd be, be needed. Be, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> instead of ner- Jesus, I know you're really hungry, but here's I'm going to put this off to the side for a little bit. This is this is going to be important later. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to end up in in uh, uh, in Wittenberg, Germany, in the Schlosskirche, and people are going to venerate it. Yeah. Silly, silly, silly things. <laughs> 17,000 of these. Yeah, and, in, and by 1520, there'd be over 19,000 relics. And if you don't know, a, a relic uh, really is any object that is associated with a, a saint or, or, or an apostle of the church. So you can think of all the apostles that had relics of them. Or, you know, probably our most popular ones is the Holy Grail. If that really exists, Indiana Jones already found it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but it's stored away in some facility. <laughs> yeah, now. somewhere. Uh, but those those are relics. Uh, so those, that's what a relic is. And by looking at one of these relics, by praying uh, with and in, in front of these relics, would gain you uh, years off of purgatory because these objects are so holy. Again, they grant you uh, more merit from the treasury of merit that is stored in heaven. Okay, so you had a figure on it. How many years it could buy you out of? Oh, according to one researcher, and this is nuts, uh, in 1518 with the 17,000 pieces, is 1,900,000 and change years off of purgatory if you looked at every single one of these relics. And and so you would, and I'm sure that there were people who took that to heart. Oh, I'm sure. And spent the entire time those relics were in there just before each one of them venerating whatever that would mean for them mm-hmm. and thinking that they are buying that much time out of purgatory, which then says something also about the level of guilt that person feels in their life at that time, that you would have to think that you would need to buy, even if you didn't know it was millions of years, but if you, you thought I'm buying off many years of my life in purgatory. Right. Well, you also got to understand the life at that time is very different from what it is now, where your life expectancy was not that long. You live in constant fear of death every day of your life. I mean, today we have modern medicine, but you could wake up with a cough in the morning and be dead by supper time. And that's how quickly diseases and plagues uh, could be run rampant through a city. So the people this time lived every day in the shadow of the fear of death, uh, which we today, we still acknowledge death, but it's not as prevalent. I mean, think about it. Mortality rates for children at this time were just astronomical. If you made it to adulthood, you were a lucky one. Uh, and if so, you lived to be an old adult, that was were... that was very rare. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's another part that fueled the whole indulgences and and also the relics and viewing these as the fear of people that they don't know when they're going to die, and so they're trying to do everything they can to make sure they can be right with God, have as little time in purgatory as possible so they can enter into the celestial paradise with Jesus Christ. So when we come back from this uh, short break, we're going to talk about, um, take the next step and and talk about uh, Luther's uh, stand against this, the consequences, and what it means um, uh, as, as we move forward for us today.
Connecting the beauty of God's Word with the beauty of creation. You're listening to the Praying with the Eyes podcast. So we need to pick up now a little bit more with some of this issue with indulgences and the 95 Theses. So why did Luther write the 95 Theses? And let's talk about those kind of rules specifically. Mm-hmm. Well, he wrote them as a, he wanted to have a scholarly debate. He had here these 95 reasons or these questions of why should we continue to continue this practice and selling of indulgences? It was never debated. He posted them, but nothing ever came of it. Well, and remember those, as we mentioned earlier too, that those theses came out of a pastoral heart because right. he saw the burden they were putting on the people in Wittenberg. Right, because what what really got his his goat about these indulgences that were being sold was that people were no, no longer coming to him for confession. That because they had now bought this indulgence that grants them plenary, from, yeah, plenary. Plen, plenary indulgence, they can live their life however they want. Oh, I'm going to go to the brothel down the street. No big deal. I got this piece of paper that says I'm free. And and so he sees this and he in it. But the th- I think the mistake that we make is we think his theology is completely formed at the time he posts in ni- the 95 Theses uh, to what we would, uh, you know, faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, those kind of things. It's like any of us. He grows deeper in his understanding of who God is, right? He absolutely does. I mean, I would say at this point in time, he is really in-depthly studying God's word and learning more and, and learning more about this idea of righteousness and that the righteousness of God comes by faith and by faith alone. And it's rocking his world. And it rocks his world when he understands that that righteousness comes from outside of us. It doesn't come from my beating myself with a whip, which he did. He did. Uh, oh. To to try to, to purge the sin out of his life mm-hmm. and other things. But it's imputed to us. I mean, that's a technical word, but, but it's given to us from outside. And I think that's still an issue we wrestle with just by our human nature. And I think why uh, Tetzel was so successful is because he was able to, to feed on the way we're told as human creatures. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's almost our human nature that we feel we've got to do something. I mean, if we want to get a job, we know we have to work hard with to do things the right way and act certain ways to get paid or you know, the ways we act in society. We have rules. We have things that we have to do in order to be a, a good person. Well, when we look at scripture, there's nothing. We do nothing. And it, it's very contrary to our very own human nature. Well, and doing something makes me feel good about myself. Yeah. And it's all about me. And it's very self-centered. I mean, uh, and, and to me, it's that, that same mentality that goes into, since we're getting closer to the Christmas season, uh, of giving so I can feel good. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't give to feel good. Sometimes it really hurts to, to give. And sometimes I give begrudgingly. And I know God loves a cheerful giver. And I, I have that in the back of my brain as something to grow into. But, you know, there's times it's not that easy. And so our human nature plays into this. And, and so so this continues to develop. Something major happens to Luther from the papacy in 1520, right? Yeah, after after he writes the theses on the door, he also goes in this area called Heidelberg and has a Heidelberg disputation where he continues to talk more about the grace of God and the theology of, of the cross and how Christ has atoned us of all of our sins. Uh, and he starts writing a lot more. 
you could, from 1518 to 1520, he was writing these little pamphlets that are directed towards the German nobility and then to the common people about how to be a, a good Christian. Well, all of these things make the Pope pretty angry. And we get, you need to understand, too, there's a major change in the world this time with the printing press. And so these things are being disseminated quickly and oh, and yeah, yeah. and prolifically. Cra crazy fact. So that when on October 31st, 1517, 95 theses are posted on the door, within 10 days, they're in Spain. And this is without airmail. This is without that's by horseback. <laughs> I mean, that's impressive. That's people It is very impressive. Taking these 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 documents and they weren't printed by Luther. I think that's also important to know. At, at first Luther didn't he didn't really know what was happening, but other people, the printers themselves, uh, copyright infringement. Oh, totally. <laughs> <laughs> they, but they they needed to sell stuff because they up until then there really wasn't a whole lot of information that the people were really buying. You know, it's kind of a novelty. It's kind of cool. Oh, cool! We have a printing press. Awesome. But it's when Luther starts writing these things in German uh, for the common people that it takes off, and as in our terminology, it goes viral. You know, and and and. It says something, too, about the nature of what he wrote, mm -hmm. okay? Now, the 95 Theses were, again, predominantly questions for, uh, for dispute. They weren't necessarily statements. They were, too, but, but there's something in the core of the people who are, who are reading this that they, they disseminate so quickly and so far, and now the papacy has a real problem on its hands. Right, because now Luther is upsetting the system. You know, he, again, at this time, still naively believes that if the Pope is just informed about these awful practices, he he will bring those, he'll, he'll bring John Tetzel in. He'll rein him in and, and get back to following. Yeah, he can't, he can't believe that the Pope even knows that this is happening. Right. He's been the, he's been deceived somehow. Right, exactly. But he's quite shocked then in 1520, as you alluded to, that suddenly he receives a papal bull. A uh, papal bull is a is an edict from the Pope, which basically declares that Luther has to recant what he has been saying and return to the ways of the Catholic Church, or he is going to be excommunicated on a certain date. Like he's going to be cast out of the church, which at this time would mean heresy and also punishable by by death. Yeah, he'll become a he'll become an outlaw. Right. Uh, Luther receives this. And he awaits to the allotted date, and then he takes that bull out and burns it himself, along with other canon law. And I've been to Wittenberg, and, and they, they, they know that spot where that took place, and it's pretty accurate. And you can go to that spot where he, he did burn uh, the papal bull. And so he's excommunicated. He is, and that's in December of 1520. And then... Uh, He's called, as we talked about already, we talked about the Diet of, of Arms, mm -hmm. and uh, at Arms, he is, uh, does not recant, and now everything, then things really move forward as far as um, uh, it's, he, he has hoped to reform the church is being seen as not, not a yeah, possibility. He, he realizes he cannot reform the church, uh, that the church is not interested in being reformed, and it's kind of disillusioning to him, but then he decides, well, so all, all right then, well, we'll just start creating our own. And things are changing in Wittenberg. You had mentioned that we had all these relics uh, that Frederick de Wise had brought into 
to Wittenberg, but by the time before he dies, uh, though he no longer has those relics. He, he gets rid of them. And and then his brother takes over. And uh, uh, that's... Um, John. Yes, John the Steadfast. And he is a Lutheran. He is a Lutheran prince. Uh, unlike Frederick the Wise, who kind of towed that line between Catholic and Lutheran, didn't really say which side he was on until maybe very late in his life. Uh, but Frederick was... or. Um, John was all in, and and it's and there's a conversion that's taking place among the electors in Germany that become it's not just um, Frederick the Wise or John the Steadfast. It's uh, when I was in um, um, good grief, Southern Germany town. And it's, uh, <laughs> don't get old. I'll think of it here and say anyway. It was Southern Germany, which is really unusual. Uh, the elector there converted too early, mm-hmm. and he's one, it was one of the signers, I believe, of the Augsburg Confession as well. Um, which so f- between fifteen, uh, twenty one, right? I'm, my That's are, diet of worms, diet of worms, and then fifteen thirty, right? Uh, a lot happens up into until the time of of Augsburg, right? And, well, well the, one of the big things that happens happens immediately after the Diet of Worms, where in, from 1521 to 1522, Luther is captured by someone. <laughs> Who is it? I don't know. Cliffhanger. No, it's it's Frederick the Wise's troops. They take him to Wartburg Castle. But it, but it's under the ruse that he's being kidnapped. That's what the papacy believes. That's right, and that he might be dead. People don't know where he is. Even Frederick the Wise doesn't know where he is. But it's during that uh, brief year stay at the castle, he does something that absolutely separates him from the Church of Rome. Like his stand that he would not recant, uh, you know, he was excommunicated and also Charles V that died of worms issued an edict saying that uh, Luther can be killed by anyone at any time without any reprisal because he's now an outlaw of the state. But And when he's at Wartburg, he translates the New Testament into German. Which doesn't sound all that amazing to us today, but you got to remember at this time the Bible was only in a very few, very few places around the world because books are very expensive, and it's only in Latin, and most people can't read Latin. It's the Latin Vulgate that was translated by Saint Jerome in the in the in three three sixty seven A.D. And Luther takes the best text he can find of the Greek to German translation, and he translates. The New Testament into Greek, and that forever separates. And it's still known as one of the best translations. Uh, you know that that's, it it's re- re- very well respected. And he did it in the fall, right? And he, I mean, it's crazy how quickly he did it. And it's also important to note that that translation is what uh, cemented the German language. I mean, to this day, uh, politics and high courts—that's the high German that is used. The same German that Luther used in writing his New Testament. So. Germany as a nation has their language rooted back in Martin Luther. Something else that's in, in just a, a bit of trivia, but I think it's it's interesting to give you a fuller picture of what was happening at the Wartburg Castle, uh, Vart, the de Wartburg, um, and it's in Eisenach, just outside of Eisenach, Germany, which at time when most of us, uh, for my age, that we knew that as actually East Germany was kind of interesting, but um, he is there under a pseudonym. He's Junker Jorg, which is Knight George. Knight George. Um, and he grows a beard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, uh, 
the the castle it's a huge castle but it was knights that were in this castle there's not a, there's not a, a family as such that owns it but it's being taken over by these knights and he's one of those knights those knights don't even know who he is and there's one room that he basically takes over called which we call the luther Stuba today and that's where he does all of his writing and he could look out this window uh, out into the forest around uh, his room it's beautiful you gotta get there. Someday, Dan, you gotta some, get there. You someday, it'd be fun there. to get there. So, I think all all these things are happening to 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 Luther, and it's amazing how quickly you know history keeps keeps going. So he's an outlaw, and now we're you know we're fifteen twenty two. He he comes back to Wittenberg uh, because people didn't know if he was alive or dead, and, and the movement that he's starting is starting to run off track a little bit. Okay. Um, some other a guy named Karlstadt, for mm-hmm. instance, and some other people that were professors with him at the University of Wittenberg are starting to teach people a little bit of craziness. And this thing breaks out called the Peasants' Revolt. And Luther comes back to put a stop to it and say, this is this is wrong. This is not what I've intended to do. I'm, I'm talking about going uh, to the word of God, and you guys are all taking this a different direction and and yet the peasant revolt is uh one of the the people will use that as kind of a stain against luther mm-hmm. uh right. as well right they will so um but things get moving and finally uh there are more and more people who are in the the german states that now i mean there's a political aspect to this they love being separate from rome Oh, absolutely. And, and they also are kind of enjoying their their um, little bit of power with Charles V. Charles V was very young, wasn't he, when he took over? He was 19 when and, he became emperor. Okay. And 1530, he's also, the Turks are still really mm-hmm. a problem. And so in, in Augsburg, um, and the 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 purpose for calling the Diet of Augsburg had a lot to do with the Turks, didn't it? Maybe I'm mistaken on that. No, you're you're right because he he wanted to bring his nation back into a one church mentality because he knew that as a if they were divided upon religion that made them weaker. So he wanted desperately to bring all his princes and all his people back under one Catholic religion, so then they could be a unified front against the Turks who were fighting them on on the eastern side of their empire. Otherwise, they're going to start fighting themselves. And in fact, uh, at the after Augsburg, some of that some words were spoken between Charles and the princes, saying, "Well, we're going to come, we're going to stay and fight you." So civil war could have broken out, but no one really wanted civil war, so civil war did not break out. But that was kind of some of the verbiage that was used between uh, these princes and Charles V. So it, it didn't happen. So Luther is at the Coburg Castle. Uh, they didn't allow him to travel to Augsburg, but it was close enough that they could relay messages to mm-hmm. him while he was there. Right, because if he had gone any further, he would have been killed. He would have been killed. And at least that was the fear right. that he would be. And and so others go to speak for him, predominantly Melanchthon, mm-hmm. and they present their confession of the what the Lutherans now, as they're being called. Yeah, which, funny thing about, like, we are, we are you know, Holy Cross Lutheran Church. Uh, Luther even himself said, don't call yourselves lutherans well and it Come wasn't the the they didn't it we was inherited a, that name because of those out who opposed it, it was the, it was john eck 
during one of the debates uh, is actually the Heidelberg Disputation in 1518, where John Eck calls these stinking Lutherans because <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a term of derision where they're making fun of and he's trying to insult the people who are following after Luther. So, hey, we, we are now. So Melanchthon presents in Latin and in German. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the Latin probably was the one that was used uh, at the, I don't can't remember, at the confession itself. At, at the, it would have been Latin there. And then, uh, but they were submitted, and that becomes the chief, has become the chief confession of those of us who are in the, the, the Lutheran um, understanding of the Christian faith, right. is the Augsburg Confession, which then was disputed, or, or the confutation uh, was written in response to uh, the Augsburg Confession, there are things that there was an agreement. I think everybody wants to say there was there were differences, but right away both sides acknowledge the ecumenical creeds. Right. There was no dis- debate over over that. It becomes when we talk about justification, Article Four, right, where things really hit the fan, and and uh, and the nature of good works as well. Yeah, the nature of good works, right? Which are, which are so which related are to, related to each other. Yeah. And that's where we get to today, and there's so much we haven't talked about, but we're going to talk here in a moment about what does all this mean uh, for that's us. A, that's a good question. What does this mean? I don't know where I got that. <laughs> Do you know where I got that? I can't remember. You're listening to the Praying with the Eyes podcast. It's time for us to start talking about what this means for us today, 500 years later, in a world that's much different than Luther's time. But is it? Do you think the world's much different? No, I really don't. <laughs> what is it? What do you see as being similar? Well, I still see uh, Christians trying to make a works-based salvation. I still see uh, Christians being staunchly in, uh, on their side of ideas instead of forming their ideas on scripture. Uh, church politics are still very much a part of the, our, our world we live in. Um, in. In this country, we enjoy somewhat of a, a distinction between religion and civil authorities, but it still can be. But I still find, I still find there's a the segment of the Christian community that wants to have a church state. Absolutely. Absolutely. They still want that utopian idea. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of things that are different. I mean, obviously, communication like we're using right now, uh, you know, our, our lives are not so much focused on that one task we have to do our whole lives. We're a little more free to do what we want to do instead of uh, being as confined as the medieval people were. Uh, medicine, technology, I mean, there's so many things that we, well, we look at with. the externals. I, I agree. There's a whole lot of stuff out there that's changed. The one thing that hasn't changed is human beings. And, <laughs> and you know, and the, the thing that, that's so true. okay, we, we are, are uh, the things around us influence how we interact with the world. I understand that. But how we interact with the world is still at the core hasn't, has not changed. Yeah. I, uh, in fact, I was talking with a, a, a person at Holy Cross yesterday about this. And I know that we've, we've mentioned the Crusades a number of time. And one, it's one of the black eyes for the Christian church are the Crusades. I'll agree with that. Don't have a problem with that. Yep. Uh, and as if that's what defines Christians, we are defined by the Crusades, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's some, in some circles. Well, then I go over to, let's go to atheism. 
and communism is atheistic. And you've got Stalin, you got Mao Zedong, who killed many more people than the Crusades ever right. did. Right. And and did it in the name of godlessness. Okay, with no God. I'm not saying that's worse than the Crusades. What I'm saying is there's a commonality between both uh, the those who were in the, uh, Stalin and Mao Zedong and what they did and the people who carried out their orders and the people who carried out the orders of the Crusades and the commonality is it's human beings. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you can change an ideology. Um, you can get rid of all the Christians in the world. You get rid of all the atheists in the world and you're still going to have human beings. And so you're still going to have the issues we're going to wrestle with. Uh, and, and so that to me is same as 500 years ago. Absolutely. And so the story of redemption, I, we're always looking for redemption, aren't we? Uh, and so in, in the uh, 16th century, they're looking for redemption through and buying indulgences. Right. And, and today we're looking for redemption in ourselves still or in or something else. Something. Technology, science. I, I, the, new, the new God, it's not new, new, but... The, 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 the altar, we sacrifice the altar of science. Mm-hmm. And, and science can be, I'm not just, science is so broad. I mean, you can add technology, which is science in that. And so you can maybe, technology is the aspect of where we, that's on the altar that we're worshiping. Technology is going to save us. Maybe it's medicine is going to save us. And we're going to find all these cures and all these answers through science. So we bow down and we worship science, which becomes a god for us and it gives us redemption you said something i think that's critical in this whole argument is i think we human creatures are looking for heaven on earth we are i think we're always trying to make the that utopian place we think we can create the garden of eden again somehow we can get it back but the truth of the matter is we were kicked out because of our own selfishness and I like the way you say we were, because even though we can sit there and say it was Adam and Eve that were kicked out, and I'm not responsible. No, I'm very responsible. I'm responsible for every action, right. even though I inherited this sin from my first parents, and my brokenness from, from God, I'm still absolutely responsible. We are. No one of us is perfect. There was this one guy who was. Yeah, one guy. One guy. <laughs> one guy. You know, and, and, and so we try to think, we think somehow in ideology is going to bring us heaven on earth. And yet I want to get back to what you were talking about, that Christians try to think that we can create heaven on earth. Right. It's amazing to me that you think about the Reformation. So Luther has this great breakthrough. He's talking about we are saved by grace through faith. This is not from ourselves. It is the gift of God, which comes right from Ephesians. And then within a few decades, even I would even argue less than that, you have some more reformers who come on the scene who take us back? <laughs> it's it's incredible how now you have these new reformers who start talking. Well, no, it's not completely grace. You still have got to be involved once you're saved and doing good works to continue your salvation. You're saved, but you have to continue doing them in order to make sure you're saved. Like, how do you know? So that goes back to again to human nature. It's where human yep. nature is too. I got to do something. I got to do something. I got to contribute something. And that's what even those of us who are in the in this Lutheran understanding of it, and 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 I'm saying not I say it that way because number of people who aren't Lutherans have the same understanding of, right. of grace, but we still all battle it. I, I just it's inside of us to 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 battle that. But we somehow think by my doing something, I'm going to create this world that um, 
is going to be better for me to live in because none of us want to live in pain, no. you know, and, uh, and we want we want a pain free life. You know, I'd love right now to have an absolute miracle happen to my back and I can wouldn't get up in the morning and and just struggle to walk. You know, um, it would be great. That's not going to happen. It's, you know, it's, I'm, my body's aging. The aches and pains and the recovery don't take uh, or more aches and pains are more. Recovery doesn't come. You know, there's no utopia for me here. No, sorry. No, I know, I know, <laughs> uh, and I feel for you. You're raising kids. You know, I, my kids are raised, and I, I, although you know, I still worry a great deal about them. But um, it's a tough world to raise kids in too. And and you're asking about the similarities and differences. I mean, think about it was a, it was an amazing thing to have the printing press invented for Luther. Well, now an idea can be spoken at a meeting in Tokyo. And two seconds later, I have it here in my hand in Colorado Springs, Colorado, you know, because of, of the worldwide Internet. You know, the, the world is so much smaller now than it ever has been before. And in many ways, I feel like this is maybe a little bit of a tangent, but I'm kind of glad Luther isn't around today because I'm sure people would have scrutinized his lifestyle. And there were things that he did probably we don't we don't always agree with. Um, no, because he wasn't perfect. Remember, there's no, only one perfect person. There's only one, per- but I feel like today one of our biggest issues is we we try to make these celebrities or or people in leadership perfect. If they're not perfect, then they they're not a good leader, and we seem to ostracize them for making a mistake, without realizing that we ourselves are just as guilty of making those mistakes. And it's interesting that that we would want to put Luther on that kind of pedestal, which would go completely against what he taught. Right. You know that that. We are not put right by being great people. Now, if we, it's like if for you and me, if we wanted to find out really what Luther was like, just ask Katie. <laughs> <laughs> ask your wife, you know? Uh, and uh, one of the most neat things for me was standing in the Luther house where he had his table talks and he would invite um, guests in and they would eat meals together. And then students would sit around the outside and they would record those table talks, sometimes very inaccurately, uh, other times accurately. So you really can't trust in necessarily everything that's said that came out of those table talks, but you know they existed. And Katie was, was, uh, she, she being a former nun was not bashful either. And she <laughs> would throw in her comments into those conversations as well. But when in those rooms, you just go, wow, this is where it happened. This is, this is, this is the and it is you know that the, yeah the furniture's changed and all that in the room, uh, but this is where it happened. Mm-hmm. It's really just it's just amazing to me. That's that's fun, um, but the 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 greatest impact still of the Reformation is that it, that we are put right with God through faith by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and it goes back for me to the issue of redemption. So people who have cut God out of any kind of argument uh, still look for redemption because they know something's wrong. There's one commonality that most everybody the, that I've run into knows that there's something wrong in this world. Mm-hmm. That things aren't right. That's what I like to think about and compare every movie, every book, every every novel that we love. If you look at the commonality of all of those stories you will always seem to find like those four parts, those four acts where things are good, evil breaks it down, um, then there's the a redemptor of some kind or the uh, 
the evil there's redemption. There, there's, there's some there's, there's redemption. Some part yeah. of yeah. redemption, and then a a final like a a uh, the final act of everything's put right again. That's that's a four act of of most movies. Why do we need movies and books? Why do they all seem similar? Because I think they're all trying to echo the greatest story. Unless you're Tarantino. Yeah. Well, some of the or uh, some of their crazy. Uh, and, and, and some of those, I, I will watch those movies uh, and once, usually, because that's all I can handle it, because they say something about a view of the world today. Mm-hmm. But even in those movies, maybe it's the lack of redemption sometimes that speak maybe. to the need for redemption. Right, maybe. The very act of them not being a, a redemptor, seeing right. as how we need that. Yeah, and the, the, the end, ending of things being uh, complete chaos. Um, these The message of the Reformation is not old. It's still very relevant to us today. Mm-hmm. And even though it's maybe more difficult to speak into the world because people are different today than they were in the sense of worldview, the, the aspect, and from that I mean this, it was, it was accepted it was a God. Mm-hmm. That wasn't question. Nobody would question that No, in, in Luther's yeah. day. Now, the true atheist, there's not as many atheists, true atheists as people want to say there are in the world. I mean, it's, there's enough. But even that there is is something different than the world right. that that uh, Luther would have grown up in. And but for for me, the biggest impact of the of the Reformation is that God's word cannot be contained. Uh, I mean, I know we did a lot of history in the earlier segments of going through what it all happened, but really, all that is meaning to say that the devil, I believe, had got a hold of some individuals in the church and had started to con- had started to constrain the very word of God. And tried to teach people incorrectly, so they they would not know of the redemption of Jesus Christ. And Luther changed that. He let the genie out of the bottle. Uh, I'm sure there were folks who knew about justification and, and grace through faith. Well, there were because of Huss. We talked about Huss. Yeah, yeah, we know we know there were others, uh, but he was the one who made it available to the people. And now to this day, now we have Bibles on our phones and. Several different languages. I mean, the Bible's been translated into 190. How many languages? I mean, that figure I don't know. Crazy amount of. I mean, it's it's been translated and still being translated into languages that. Uh, yeah, like more than any other work of antiquity, and it's still the number one best-selling book every year, year after year, and that that doesn't include digital subscriptions. So, I think he let that genie out, that made it made God's word accessible to the people. And that's that to me is one of the biggest legacies of the Reformation is just having the word of God in our hands. Which also has created some interesting things that we don't have time to talk about from yeah, the standpoint of interpretation of Scripture. And right. what there are some movements to say we don't need clergy anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, things that, that there's always going to be what I will consider abuses sure. of, of that as well. Well, thanks, Dan, for, for spending this time with me. Uh, I enjoy history, and you and I both do, and 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 uh, I appreciate your sharing with us just this little n- little nuggets of of the Reformation on this 500th anniversary. Uh, but maybe we can do some other something else some other time. <laughs> some more what history. Are, what, are, what other what other should we do? What other historical event should we take on sometime? Perry County. <laughs> People don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> you talk about Saxony. My my uh, relatives come out of Saxony. At least that's what I've been told. <laughs> you need to have, have a DNA test. I was going to say I have to get a DNA test and find out the, what my true, uh, my true national, national background is. Probably Polish. <laughs> <laughs>
which would be great. No, nothing against that. It's just something that you, you, you wonder uh, sometimes, I, all the stories. I, I really wonder, too. Like, I know half of me is German because we've done genealogy work back to the 16th century on my mother's side. Okay. My dad's side? I know. I know. I well. I know my great grandmother, who I knew because she died when I was in college. Was she came here from Germany, and uh, the stories behind that. But it's interesting. Well, thank you for spending this time with us. Uh, this ministry is an uh, important ministry in, in, in my life, and I enjoy spending time with you on these podcasts. Uh, we'll see if the video works. Hey, yeah. you maybe want to watch it on video. Um, it will be up on, and I'll post a link to it on Facebook if it does work eventually. Uh, but anyway, uh, next time as I as I uh, look forward to what's coming next, I'm going to be joined by Alan Briggs, and he and I are going to talk about his book Everyone's a Genius and what that what he means by that. And look at creativity among Christians, and maybe we'll video that one too. There you go. <laughs> Everybody, uh, thanks for 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 listening. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on this edition of the Praying with the Eyes podcast. For thoughts and questions that you might have, please email Doug at questions at prayingwiththeeyes.com. We look forward to being with you in our next episode. Posted yesterday, last night, on Facebook. It's from the garden in uh, uh, Rose Garden in San Jose. And I got this lady that was sitting on a bench. So I can't see it too well. This is my favorite. One of my favorites of her, just sitting there in the Rose Garden. And a film, I love the characteristic of film. Film is just spectacular.